Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined again today with Dr. Michael Kolakowski for a conversation uh, this time on the life of Antoninus Pius, a former Roman emperor. And the last time Dr. Kolakowski joined the show, we conducted a, a conversation and uh, produced an episode on the la- life of uh, Ant- uh, Antoninus Pius's predecessor, Hadrian. And uh, that episode was published on, I checked before, uh, it's coming on the show today. That was published on April 3rd. So Dr. Kolakowski is back today to speak about the um, Hadrian's successor, Antoninus Pius, and uh, to share more about what scholars know of Antoninus Pius's life, including the early period of his life, his adulthood and career as a Roman emperor, and the later period of his life, including his death. Dr. Kolakowski is professor and head of the Department of History at Penn State University, based in the U.S. He's the author of many publications over his career, including a couple monographs as examples. The first one, The Triumph of Empire, The Roman World, from Hadrian to Constantine, which was published by Harvard University Press. And the second one, which acts as a sequel, The Tragedy of Empire, from Constantine to the Destruction of Roman Italy, which was also published by Harvard University Press. Welcome back on the show, Michael. It's nice to be back. Thanks very much for having me, Andrew. All right, so I'll ask a similar question, Michael, as I asked uh, in the last episode, but we were speaking about a different person at that time, a different previous Roman emperor. Who was Antoninus Pius? Oh, Antoninus Pius was um, a somewhat unlikely choice for emperor. He uh, is interesting in part because he's... uh, He's known for having had the single most peaceful reign uh, in the entire history of the Roman Empire. And um, the way he came to the throne, uh, which we talked about last time, but we can talk about against here, is, is somewhat unusual. Uh, so that's that's sort of the that's sort of the reason that he's he's famous is that he's um, the successor of Hadrian, one of the most active Roman emperors ever, and the predecessor of Marcus Aurelius, who of course is one of one of the very most famous and most intellectual of Roman I was really looking forward, uh, still am looking forward, right? But we're in the conversation now. I was really looking forward to chatting with you today because this should be interesting because you and I spend, um, I think the episode was short of 40 minutes, but let's call it, you know, 35, 40, 40 minutes um, on uh, Antoninus Pius's uh, predecessor. And so what's neat is there's going to be this some of this juxtaposition going on in the conversation today, which I think will make a dynamic conversation. Um, again, you already mentioned, right, you already got at kind of a difference uh, in, in his reign. And so we'll unpack that a little bit at some point and understand better why this uh, reign is considered uh, more peaceful if you contrast it against uh, maybe Trajan's reign or Hadrian's uh, reign. Um, okay, so... I, I don't want to go to the early period of his life yet, and we will work work our way through that kind of typical story arc. But um, I so I, I I I googled this. I got this. I got this online. First of all, tell me if this sounds accurate in terms of his name. This is more his like the longer name that I found. So Caesar, Titus, alias. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Hadrianus, Antoninus, Augustus, Pius. First of all, does that sound? 
accurate? That's 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 right. I mean, so a number of parts of that are in fact um, parts of the title, not his name, um, but so the the full the full imperial name includes the words uh, Imperator, Caesar, um, and then Augustus, all of which are titles as well as part of his name, and then his name he's named after his adoptive father Hadrian, so that's the uh, Elias Hadrianus, and then um, uh, and then Pius is uh, is a cognomen that he was given, which indicates what it sounds like in English, which is that he was um, said to be to have been very very pious um, and respectful of his predecessor by having Hadrian deified, uh, made into a god by the Senate against the wishes of some senators. Okay, yeah, and you preempted um, what my my question and comments were going to be around that. So that, uh, in terms of breaking down some of these these words, um, Titus is that accurate, and where does that come from? He was that he was born. That's that's his first name at, at birth. Okay. So his birth is, he, he's born. Uh, I'm not sure whether um, <laughs> whether listeners are going to are, are going to want to know this, but his, he was born with a different set of names than than he acquired by adoption by Hadrian. So he was born as Titus Aurelius, Fulvius, Boionius, Arius, Antoninus. And not, and not, oh, did you say Antoninus as well in that? Antoninus is a birth name. Yep. It is. The, okay. Okay. Um, I think that's very interesting. I hope, I, I hope listeners find this interesting as well. Um, when Ro- when Ro- I mean, when Romans adopted, um, and sons and daughters, but particularly sons, the adoptive son took, abandoned some elements of his birth name and took on new elements of uh, his adoptive father's name. Okay, so let's let's go into that then. This is why I didn't want to just jump into the early period of his uh, life. Uh, let's because one of the things that it wasn't a, it wasn't a cliffhanger because we really did cover the end of Hadrian's life. Uh, but one of the things came up was succession for for Hadrian. So can you describe then? how uh, Antoninus Pius came to become the uh, an emperor of of Rome and then once we kind of cover that then then we can go go back and cover more of the early period and right work our way through a chronology right so um so um Antoninus had had a relatively um standard senatorial career uh under Hadrian the family um uh, had really come to prominence a generation before Hadrian. Um, and uh, he won the notice of the emperor uh, and, and won the consulship in, one tw- in the year 120, um, which is the highest honor uh, that a senator can, uh, that the, 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 the senator can, um, can achieve. And he was, at the end of it, um, married to, um, sorry, to, uh, he was married to Faustina, who is um, his cousin. Um, and this is um, in part to have Antoninus married into Hadrian's family. Okay. Sorry, that was a, that was a long-winded way of saying he married into Hadrian's family and then was adopted by Hadrian. Okay. Okay. Faustina is Hadrian's niece, uh, and uh, when Antoninus comes to 
Adrian's attention, he is married to Hadrian's niece and then ad eventually adopted as Hadrian's successor. Yeah, and I paused because I was actually thinking about the word adoption. So I want to I want to clarify that that term because I, I, I it might it might not be being used in the context that we're used to in contemporary terms. So can you describe then what uh, how are you using the term adoption in this case? Sorry. So uh, in Roman law. Adoption means that you are, uh, it, it's a legal term. It is, it, it's often, in fact, more often than not um, done for, um, for adults or for, or for adolescents. It's a way in which uh, men who don't have sons can continue to the family line on the one hand. Um, and what it means is that you're adopted as the son of another man, uh, you are given the legal uh, rights of an heir and also the legal responsibilities of an heir. So that means that you're responsible for carrying out, you know, the, you inherit the debts as well as the properties. You're um, responsible for making sure that, that all of the stipulations of your adoptive father's will are carried out and you're meant to take on all of the obligations um, as the head of the family to your your adoptive father when he becomes officially adopted by hadrian is that when the, the 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 phrase or the appellation caesar gets applied to him yes okay yes. and when he becomes roman emperor is that when the appellation augustus gets applied yes yeah augustus is um C caesar I mean, obviously they, they're derived from julius caesar um, the adoptive father of the, of the first emperor, Augustus. And those are names that are somewhere between family names and titles. And Caesar is really starts to become the, um, the, the phrase, the, the, the name that indicates being heir to the throne, right? The person designated to succeed the reigning emperor. And then you take on the title Augustus when you become, when you take on the full powers of the emperor. Okay. Yeah, I'm glad we spent some time on his uh, more imperial um, titles and, and names. I found that uh, yeah, very, very interesting and fun. Um, okay, so what is known about the early period of his life? Well, he's um, born in Italy, uh, and um, his father is also had a, had a successful political career. He had been consul in 89. Um, and the family's origins are in what's now uh, Provence, uh, Nîmes. Um, so one of the very oldest parts of Roman colonization outside of Italy. But he really had, um, he, his family, it was his grandfather who came to prominence um, as, a, uh, as a legionary commander who sided with the winner in the civil wars that followed uh, Nero's death. So the family sided with Vespasian, who became uh, emperor and reigned for a substantial period of time. And it was under Vespasian and his sons that uh, Antoninus's family becomes um, really prominent. Where is, uh, where is or was Nîmes? Uh, Nîmes is in, uh, is in Provence, in the south of France. Okay. So that... Um helps me and anyone who may not have known be able to visualize it um, geographically. It's um, famous for Roman aqueduct, um, so. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so where would he have... Did, did was he raised in Neem, and at what point is he known to? Uh, if he wasn't, if he wasn't raised in Neem, um, where was where was he raised? Uh, at Rome, and on okay. the family estates in in central Italy in Tuscany. Okay. Victoria. Okay. So, can you speak about what what's known uh, in terms of how he was raised? It sounds like uh, he comes from an aristocratic family. Can you speak about what's known about how he was uh, trained? Um, what what he might have been active in uh why why i mentioned that is I, I believe with hadrian you mentioned that he was in uh into equestrian uh correct me if i'm if i'm wrong in any way but i i, I recollect that so can you speak about what what languages was he trained in probably or if it's known what were his main activities that he was trained or may perhaps they were they were um hobbies and uh where that would have occurred if that was occurring in tuscany was it in rome was he sent off to Greece, perhaps? Can you d- describe more that education and activity side of his life? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, all Roman senators and aristocrats in this period um, basically have the same education. Uh, but it makes you bilingual in Latin and Greek, because um, Greek is still, to a large extent, the language of culture, uh, and even more so under Hadrian, uh, who was very sort of phil, uh, philhelling, philhelene. Um, but um, you basically you got your basic um, your basic language skills from a household slave, uh, and then you were sent to uh, a grammaticus who taught you um, the basic structure of your of the languages, and then you were after that sent to a to a rhetor, um, which meant that you were taught the art of public speaking, and for a Roman senator in this period. Effectively, the one skill that you're taught is how to speak in public, is how to have uh, speak in a very conventional, very, uh, very, very conventional way, but um, one that was sort of readily translatable and understandable in polite company. And you were meant to be able to do it in both Greek and in Latin. And so that's, that's the standard education he would have had, unlike, unlike many... Uh, uh, children of senators, he seems never ever to have been given any real military training or to have done any sort of um, any of the sort of um, preparation for, uh, for for command that um, many senatorial youth did. Okay, and I can't go back and re-listen to my my question, um, so I either said it or I didn't. But one of the things that I certainly intended to say, and it certainly may be there is asking if, if it's known if he, if he went to Greece um, for his training. I just can't recall if I said Rome or Greece. But, it's, but it's, do we know if he ever went to Greece for training? It's as, far as, we, as far as we know, he never traveled. I mean, as far as we know, he, is, he, he certainly never traveled outside Italy during his reign. And in, in, in all likelihood, he had never really been anywhere further than um, his family estates in, in, uh, in Gaul. Okay, okay. Um, so... Can you uh, uh, describe what what occurs in terms of how he comes on the the um, the, the the radar, the map to to Hadrian? Um, he you did you did describe a little bit about his fa- family, and there's the, uh, he comes from an aristocratic um, family, and there's 
uh, you mentioned his grand grandfather. But what's known about when, 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 and if uh, Hadrian actually uh, identifies him as a successor? Uh, well, as a successor, it's it's not clear that it was until right before. I mean, really, right before Hadrian died, Hadrian had already settled on not one but two two prospective heirs who predeceased him. Um, and so, but but Antoninus was a member of the family. He had married married Hadrian's niece Faustina back in um, somewhere around the year one ten, one twelve in there. Um, and so he was, um, you know, he he was the next. Uh, he was he was as as, clo- as close a relative, uh, male relative as Hadrian had um, at that point, and so the adoption made made very good sense. Um, he would have been noticed by Hadrian when he was making a career when he Antoninus was making a career for himself. So that would have been you know around the um, around the year one hundred um, in the in the last years of last years of Trajan. Okay. Uh, he was consul in 120, you said, right? Correct, yeah. Okay. So three, so three years after Hadrian became emperor uh, was the year in which Antoninus was consul. What? So he was, on the radar, he was on the radar for the whole reign. It's just that um, he wasn't... There's no, there's no indication that he was being considered as a successor and an heir until very late in the reign. Okay. Um, probably when Hadrian was getting older, I presume. When Hadrian was getting older and sicker and he had already lost previous heirs. Um, okay and it, it probably bears uh it's probably, probably worthwhile mentioning too it came up in in our previous episode hadrian didn't have any children hadrian did not have any children correct okay um so he was consul so it's so okay so he's consul in uh, in 120 what's known about how he was as a consul but can you also um include in your answer the relationship between uh a consul and the and the roman emperor and what i'm getting at with that uh, question is, um, what authority or or power did uh, did a consul by this point in time in Rome have? If there's also an an emperor that exists, well, I mean a number of things, and I and I and I um, and I should of course I I, I remember I, I misspoke uh, earlier about his not having traveled. Um, yeah, go ahead, I'll, I'll clarify. We'll, yeah. we'll come to it. Uh, I'll mm-hmm. come to it in a second. Okay. Um, the, the consul is um, in some ways honorific. First of all, you need consuls because they give a year a name. The Romans didn't count, you know, they didn't have AD, they didn't count years by numbers. They referred to the year in which X and Y were consuls. So that's probably uh, the, the sort of mnemonic that, that this was just how Romans thought about time is they measured it by who on January 1st was consul. And so um, at the start of the year, the two consuls, it's a mark of great honor. It's uh, for somebody who has already accomplished um, something in previous magistracies. Um, uh, Antoninus had already served in, in two of the main earlier early career magistracies. The importance of being consul though means that once you've been consul, you uh, can go off and be a provincial governor. Uh, it gives you the sort of, um, the, it's the, the step necessary to become a proconsul. Proconsul means that you are off governing one of Rome's provinces. And of course, um, this is where I misspoke, Antoninus was proconsul of Asia, which means uh, what's now 
the northeast, uh, rather northwestern corner of, of Turkey. Interesting. Um, what would in in the Roman Empire during this period of time have been considered a a higher position, the proconsul, the the governor position, or a consul in uh, Rome? Well, cons- consul is is the highest honor a man can achieve in his life, and then you can go on to a career as proconsul uh, or uh, a legate of one of the big legions. Um, so, um, as proconsul. You can, and so the the being consul is is the precondition for going to hold one of these highest levels of you know um, of office of magistracy. Okay, and presumably that that position in uh, Asia Minor, in the Anatolian Peninsula, uh, occurred um, before he was Roman emperor. It did. It it, it occurred um, in the one thirties. So towards the end of Hadrian's reign. Okay, that might have been uh, if it if it occurred uh, the opposite direction. That that probably would have been an unusual uh, circumstance in Rome. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So yeah, can you summarize then that his position? Why don't we just cover that? Can you can you summarize posi- his position as a governor in the Anatolian Peninsula, and then we'll we'll we'll, we'll work our way into the uh, his his uh, his his. Uh, position as Roman emperor and more things about his adulthood. Sure. So um, there were there were important provinces that had armies and important provinces that didn't. Asia is um, the, the as, as you said, um, Asia, is Asia Minor. It's a little corner of what's now, you know, what's the Anatolian Peninsula. Um, it's basically um, Istanbul and uh, Asian Istanbul and point south. You know, it's the um, uh, and it's, so it's not large, but it's very, very prestigious. It's filled with a lot of old Greek cities, very wealthy Greek cities, and so it's uh, it's a, it's a mark of great honor, even if it's um, doesn't come with much opportunity for military glory. Uh, the proconsul's main role would be listening to delegations from the Greek cities uh, and then um, administering. Uh, administering justice to Roman citizens in the province, because of course there were at this period the majority of the population in the provinces is are not legally Romans. Okay, um, and how how many how many years approximately, or if it's uh, if scholars know exactly that was he proconsul? We don't know precisely um, how long, uh, but mostly proconsuls, um, particularly decorative proconsuls like the proconsul of Asia were there for a year or so um the big military commands could last a lot longer okay um okay so so let's go to the uh him becoming roman uh emperor can you can you share what the circumstances were and and him being um uh uh, being uh, coronated or uh uh, anointed i'm using that term uh loosely roman emperor Sure. Uh, when um, Hadrian's uh, first adopted son uh, died, um, Ilias Caesar, uh, he Hadrian turned to um, you know Antoninus, the the husband of of Hadrian's niece, and um, adopted him as son and uh, successor uh, in February of one thirty eight, and this meant that you know assuming that he. Uh, outlived Hadrian, he would become emperor. But the condition of that was that Antoninus would also adopt 
Hadrian's, two of Hadrian's favorite uh, nephews um, and, uh, um, and adopted, uh, and adopted uh, relations. So Marcus Aurelius would be Antoninus's successor and Antoninus, when he became Hadrian's successor, adopted Marcus at the same time. The goal was on Hadrian's part to ensure the succession, not just for one generation, but for two. Okay. So, and, and that occurred. So he ends up adopting two of this um, people that uh, Hadrian selected, one being Marcus Aurelius. Right, correct. Okay. Uh, and adopting them as brothers. And, um, and then this was Hadrian's, again, plan to make sure that everything went smoothly down into the, into the fairly distant future, distant future. And so um, that is, uh, that's how Antoninus becomes, he, he's meant to be a caretaker to a, to a very large extent. You know, I think that's, I think it's safe to say Hadrian chose him in order to be a stopgap between Hadrian himself and Hadrian's favorites, Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus. Um, tell us about, uh, so he's Roman emperor now. He becomes emperor uh, on uh, he, later in the year when Hadrian dies. Yeah. Okay, and uh, yeah, and that was a question I was going to ask. Um, uh, does he become Roman emperor as of Hadrian dying, or right right before when Hadrian's ill, or something else? No, he be- he adopted he became Augustus um, when Hadrian died. So uh, in July of one thirty eight, so a few months after his adoption. Okay. How was he as a uh, Roman emperor? <laughs> the fact of the matter is, is that his reign is almost a blank. You see, this is part of what makes it very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's part of the reason he's thought of as being such a good emperor, is that there's very, very little narrative history that we can tell about Antoninus's reign. Uh, it's, he's thought of as being one of the five good emperors, um, in part because he kept the empire at peace. He seems to have administered laws... Um, relatively even-handedly, and he didn't really have a a sort of adversarial relationship with the Senate, whereas, which which Hadrian certainly did. Um, And so Pius is known, really, not for anything he did do, but for all of the things he didn't do. He didn't wage many wars at all. There were no major invasions. There were no major conflagrations. There was no major sort of treason trials or problems with this with the senate and so he's known for he's really known for the quietude of his way not for not for activity hmm yeah and you've you've gone through the records and the archives um with various uh, roman roman emperors um and you have you have uh certain people like tacitus who wrote biographies on roman emperors was um I, I, I can take that back if needed, Michael. Tacitus <laughs> certainly not write biographies. He wrote narrative histories. He wrote uh, narrative histories. Uh, he wrote a biography of, of his father-in-law, Agricola, but that's not... Um, but Suetonius, I think you're thinking of, wrote biographies. Uh, if, if anyone's listening, my, Michael was trying to stop me from asking the question, so <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't that intuitive. Uh, I, I saw the physical signs. <laughs> um, so in the... Uh, certain times you've gone through the records in the archives there are certain um uh people historians of that time who write uh biographies on on various people did 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 anyone 
do that close to contemporary times with um, Antoninus? Was there any, was there was there anyone writing about his life and reign that you came across? Sure, there's a um, there's a series of imperial biographies, which is a very controversial set of imperial biographies, known as the Historia Augusta, which continue Suetonius, who wrote the lives of the twelve Caesars from Julius Caesar onwards, and. Um, and Suetonius is, was a famous author and became really the model of biography for for centuries, for millennia, really. Um, but this this other biographer, whose name we don't know, um, wrote the biographies of the emperors of after emperors after um, Suetonius stops up through uh, the beginning of the third century and. Antoninus Pius is his biography is extremely short in this, and there's not a whole lot of you know there there if you want. It's a very short. It's a description of the reign, not not of the man. Um, and unlike the biography of Hadrian, which is really long and really filled with incident and detail, um, and so you know Pius comes across as kind of colourless and um, you know not not terribly. Not terribly exciting, which is why, in some ways, he is exciting because the Roman Empire is filled with, you know, the, the Roman history is basically one giant catalog of violence and mayhem. And here you have a twenty-year period in which the there's, you know, a Moorish invasion of Spain. There is um, an attempt to conquer lowland Scotland, um, and and a couple of rebellions by uh, commanders that are put down really, really fast, and that's it. That's all there is, um, and that's un- unusual stability, and unusual, um, you know, unusual quiet for the Roman Empire. Hmm. Um, what uh, amount of that uh, level of peacefulness during his reign do you? And it's it's probably a, a, uh, interpretive. Um, do you uh, account for? the way he actually conducted himself as uh, Augustus or the circumstances that he inherited? I think actually this is very much preference, preference on his part. Um, I think this is, a, this is somebody who wanted a very, very, the, the, the bare minimum of military prestige that he needed to be emperor, which is why he launched this, um, an attempt to extend Roman control in Britain from, from Hadrian's Wall in the north of England uh, further north into Scotland um, between the Forth and the Clyde. And um, this was, uh, you know, it was a successful campaign. It got him all the military, you know, kudos that he needed. And then he stopped. Uh, and I think that his interest was in, you know, sparing the state. Wars are extremely expensive. So he's known to have left a great deal of money in the treasury when he died. Um, and, uh, you know, it was basically he, he was the epitome of the careful um, estate manager, right? It's like, it's like he managed the empire as if he were managing his own landed properties. And uh, that was, it, that meant that what you wanted was sort of no drama, really, if you could, if you could avoid it. How much travel uh, w- did he do, if it's known, um, during, his, during his reign? And why I asked that question is you mentioned in the previous episode that Hadrian spent a lot of time in the provinces. So um, how much travel uh, did he do and, and where did he spend most of his time? 
he divided his time between uh, Rome and his townhouse there and the Senate and so on, um, and his estates, mostly his estates in Etruria. Um, he never left Italy as emperor, so that would make him really close to the, possibly the only Roman emperor never to leave Italy during his reign. Um, he, unlike, unlike Hadrian, he was comfortable at Rome. He got on well with other, with other senators. Um, he didn't feel any sort of need to go off and be restless elsewhere. And, uh, you know, Hadrian traveled all the time in part because he was not popular with, he was popular in the provinces. He was not popular with the Senate at Rome. So being away from Rome was really important for Hadrian. Whereas Antoninus could really, you know, could really have a sort of normal senatorial life, even as emperor. Um, his 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 wife, uh, Faustina. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, sure. Yep. Okay. Um, what's known about the relationship that that they had, and did they have any children? Uh, yeah. So uh, the, I mean, it's, what constitutes a good, a good marriage in Roman terms is is you know a, a, an entirely separate story. But um, uh, they they appear to have had a perfectly um, happy and, um, you know, and long marriage. Uh, so they were married um, for 30 something years. Um, and uh, they had four children, um, only one of whom um, uh, outlived the, his parents, uh, her, I should say her parents, Faust, another Faustina, so Faustina the Younger, who ended up um, being the wife of Marcus Aurelius. Okay, okay. Um, is there any other, before we work our way into the later period of his life, and this could come up in the later period of his life, life too, is there any other um, policies? Um, you'd mentioned a decision he made in, um, uh, in extending the Hadrian's uh, wall. Um, was there any other policy decisions, whether uh, geopolitical, um, what I mean by that is like from an international perspective or, or internally, was there any other major policies that you want to highlight that he, uh, that he made? Well, I think the, I mean, the British, the British campaign is the thing he's most, um, the most known for. Um, but he, um, you know, his, he's mostly known for his economic management and, um, for, administration of law, right? Uh, and, and, and I think one of the things that made him most popular and, and made him uh, the story that they tell is that the emperor, that as emperor, he uh, gives a tax moratorium on cities that are like, affected by massive earthquakes. And this is something that, that is, is notable. It's notable and it's noticed in the, in the existing sources that this is sort of like an, another act of piety, another act of, of mercy and good management. Um, Hadrian spent a lot of time in uh, what would be modern day Greece. Um, did the uh, relationship with uh, Greece during his reign, do you think it uh, continued to uh, imp improve through, through his, his reign? And why I say it like that is it sounded like Hadrian spent a lot of time uh, in, in Greece. Yeah, no, so Hadrian, Hadrian was, was famously, uh, famously sort of uh, following in the footsteps of Alexander the Great and a, and a, and a huge admirer of, of Greek culture. Um, Antoninus certainly carried on all of Hadrian's sort of policy towards the Greek world, which is to say, to really treat the, the, 
the urban elites uh, of the Greek city-states as as sort of privileged voices, as privileged um, as, as as privileged you know companions on his travels. Certainly, one thing this is the period from Hadrian onwards, and certainly under Pius, that Greek rich Greek families who were previously content to basically operate in this old-fashioned way within their own little local city-state as great patrons, now really start in, in serious numbers um, accepting the possibility that as Roman citizens, they can go be senators. And this is, so this is really one of the, one of the key changes of this period in Roman history is the number of elite Greeks who start um, participating in Roman government. Okay, uh, so later period of his life, um, a, a before and after uh, a question. So, what was? Could you describe if 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 we're looking at a map, what he inherited when he became uh, Roman emperor in terms of the demarcation of the Roman em- em- Empire? And uh, is it thought? Well, clearly it changes a, a bit. Can you describe what? Uh, Rome, the Roman Empire would be demarcated to at the end of his reign. Sure. So, I mean, the the empire that he inherits is actually remarkably similar in its in its contours to the one that he inherited. The one he leaves behind um, are very similar. I mean, it runs from uh, basically Morocco um, and the mountains in Morocco across uh, over to what's now Libya and and Egypt up through the Levant uh, and into Asia Minor uh, and the little sort of northeastern edge of the empire is, is in Mesopotamia. Um, and then across the Balkans and into the Carpathians of, you know, now now in Romania. Um, and then along the, the, the frontier is basically Rhine and Danube with a little um, extension uh, that sort of closes up the gap between the Rhine and the Danube and what's now Germany, over to the North Sea um, and uh, in and into Britain, where the empire was basically, um, you know, was Wales, England, Wales and England up to Hadrian's Wall um, in the north. And then after uh, Pius, he tries to extend it northwards into what's now Scotland. Uh, the difference would be that instead of something like 70 miles from coast to coast, uh, where Antoninus built his wall, it's only, it's only 40 or so from, uh, from the Clyde, across the Clyde okay. for, uh, Forth okay. um, Isthmus there. And, um, and the problem, of course, was that this is highly, highly unproductive land. It's really grazing land. It's not a, you can't farm it. There's no, there's no utility to building villas there. And so the, extension of the empire it doesn't last okay and that is not in his life though it's already i mean we we, we don't, don't see any major development but certainly it's gone by the time of his successor marcus aurelius sure okay okay how does he die and can you speak about uh the succession sure i mean the, the expectation had been always that um that his the two adopted children the two adopted children that adrian had him you know, adopt uh, Marcus Aurelius and then uh, the adoptive younger brother, Lucius Verus, um, um, would succeed him towards the end of his reign. So in uh, already in the in the 150s, 
um, Marcus, the older of the heirs, began to take on quite a lot of <clears throat> quite a lot of administrative responsibility in his role as Caesar. And so when uh, Pius got began to sicken, he was on his estates when he began to sicken, early in March of 161. Um, and um, apparently he, you know, he, there's a standard story of, in Roman emperors, they overeat and they get sick and then they die, you know? And so uh, you hear that uh, quite a lot. But um, the day after he died, um, the uh, Marcus, Marcus became, uh, he became Augustus, um, basically upon the death of, uh, Marcus became Augustus upon Antoninus' death. Okay. Um, what, what year did he di Sorry, die? 61. No, it's okay. Yeah, I just want to uh, make sure that gets across. And how many years, uh, if we do fast math, how many years did he uh, reign for? Uh, if so, 138 to one, uh, 161, so 22, more or less. Yeah, 20. I'm doing quick math 22, 23, 22, 23, depending on how you depend on what my <laughs> July, July to March. So, yeah, so July to March, call it 23. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm sure someone, if they want the exact, can uh, Google some kind of uh, calculator on, uh, on months and years. Um, okay, so, uh, how how do you think he should be uh, remembered most as a previous uh, Roman emperor? Well, I think that it's uh, what's what's really significant here is that he um, he repairs relations that have been damaged between the emperor, the imperial family, and and the most powerful and important senators uh, in Rome, and so this sort of if you will, re-establishment of the legitimacy of the of, of the, this form of government is actually really quite significant, and I think that's probably the most important thing. Is that he his very lack of drama and his very civility um, reconfers legitimacy on the imperial system of government after Hadrian really, really you know had a, a long reign of rubbing senators up the wrong way. So. Thanks for coming on the show again, Michael. It's always enjoyable to speak with you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Okay, everybody. The couple books, again, that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Kalikowski wrote, The Triumph of Empire, The Roman World from Hadrian to Constantine, and the other one, which, uh, as I mentioned, can very much act like a sequel, The Tragedy of Empire, From Constantine to the Destruction of Roman Italy, I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Michael and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.